We're going to be in Revelation 17. Now, the last time we finished up the bowl judgments, we had the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and then the seven bowls. And today we're going to see an amplified picture of the Babylonian system and what it means, because especially in chapters 17 and 18, and, and a lot through Revelation, we keep hearing about Babylon. Well, the only way for you to understand Babylon is for us to really go back to Genesis, because Babylon started in Genesis, and it kind of ends in Revelation, in a sense. Simply put, Babylon is a, a system that's satanically designed to forever isolate man from God, and that's the purpose. We're going to see that Babylon is spoken of as a city, sometimes literally, sometimes figuratively. As a matter of fact, Babylon today is in Iraq. They still have some of the impressive walls of the city of Babylon that have still been preserved. And next chapter, we'll talk about political Babylon and you know, the actual place versus literally uh, things spoken of as Babylon. It's a picture of a demonic system, political and economic system, and a false religious system. Once you understand the fluidity of when I say Babylon, and also the woman who's riding the beast, which we're going to get into, you're going to see that there's is representations of a few different things. Once you understand that, you won't be confused when I start to change gears. Okay, expect that fluidity. Um, the first mention of Babylon is in uh, Genesis chapter 10, which I'm going to read a few verses. Genesis chapter 10. And Babylon starts with a man named Nimrod. Kind of funny name. When I was a kid, somebody would say, hey, don't be a Nimrod. I never knew what Nimrod was, but I do now. And his name means strong or rebel. And, it's, and he founded, he was part, he founded these cities, he built these cities, and then there was a building project in chapter 11 on this tower of Babylon. Sort of like a ziggurat that if you saw pictures of the Middle East, you would see these big ziggurats. They had uh, large bases and they would wind around and around and get thinner as they went up. And uh, the pyramids have some, uh, something to do with that also. But Genesis 10 Starting with verse 8, it says, Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, quote, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ur, and Kala. So he's a pretty busy guy, pretty driven, type A personality maybe. But what you don't get out of the English translation is when you really study the Bible and you go into the older languages, you really pull more. It's, the translation's good, but there's more that's pulled out of it. I believe the Hebrew word is poanin. He was a mighty hunter, poanin, before the Lord. And the word means uh, not just before. It means antagonistic to the Lord. That totally changes the meaning, doesn't it? It means in defiance to the Lord. And it means as a counterbalance to the Lord. This guy was a rebel. He was strong. And he was a counterbalance to the Lord. The Babylonian system was always a counterbalance to God's system of purity and sufficiency. It started the, the uh, false religions and the man-centered religions. Because, you see, in the beginning, God created men and women, and they all spoke the lang same language according to the scripture. Well, that would make sense because we're all from the same family. And then what happened was they, they uh, started getting together on this building project and building this Tower of Babel. And in a sense, they wanted to build this tower to the heavens, but not for a good reason. You see, God, and you can see this throughout history, God's system for us to get to him is through grace. 
And we know that he gave his son, Jesus, to die for our sins, the ultimate expression of grace and love. Because when Jesus died and shed his blood, he, it, we're forgiven for our sins. We just have to lay hold of this sacrifice. But ever since the beginning, man has been trying to get to God through another way. I understand the Jesus thing. I understand the grace thing. But you know what? I'm going to do it by my works. I'm going to do it by observing these rituals. It's this constant struggle between what God really says about a relationship and what man tries to do through his own works. So they built this tower of Babel to reach the heavens and kind of get to God's heaven sort of by bypassing him. A little ridiculous, but that's basically the, uh, the nutshell of it. Well, the result was God confused their language. I don't know how many languages he divided them into, but now the laborers couldn't speak to the guys mixing the mortar and the mortar guys couldn't speak to the architects and what they started doing was ending up in their own groupings and there was a scattering of mankind over the face of the earth. Interesting, th this is amazing. The Bible is such an awesome puzzle that when you start to put the pieces together, everything makes sense. The word Babel has two meanings. One is gateway to God. And that was the original idea. The second meaning is confusion. When God scattered their languages, he brought confusion onto them and they ended up scattering. And that was the end result. So that we also get the English, English word out of that Babel. A lot of our words come from the scriptures. So you might say, Joe's up there and he's really much, pretty much babbling right now. Okay? <laughs> so that's what you have there. Now, Nimrod was a type of really the Antichrist. He was the original Antichrist. He was the original. And understand the word anti in the Greek doesn't necessarily mean against. It means in place of. People looked to him as the mediator. He was this wonderful leader that they all looked to, and he was going to get them to the gates of heaven. So he's the original Antichrist in a sense, and the Babylonian system we're going to see in this woman who rides the beast. This part of the Bible, I, I must tell you, I mean, I've been doing this for almost four years now, and uh, I really grieved over having to teach this. You know, a friend of mine who I'm accountable with, another pastor, uh, Jason of, in New Brunswick, he said, you know, I've told the body that when I teach about hell, I don't particularly enjoy teaching about hell. Well, I'm not going to really enjoy teaching what I have to teach you today, but nonetheless, I'm not skipping over God's word. We're going to see Babylon get into religion, and some of the stuff is going to hit close to home. And we're going to see the personification of this woman who's riding the beast, and it may test some of our loyalties. Now, I've got to tell you, listen, we're on tape. <laughs> you can hear it on the website. We are a Calvary Chapel. But my loyalties don't lie with Calvary Chapel. They lie with Jesus Christ. So let me say that right off the bat, okay? Now, you're going to see Babylon into the church. Many churches you may have come from, maybe a church that I have come from, and maybe even some of the churches we've been involved with today to varying degrees. So I just need you to know that up front, sort of like a, a little warning or a preamble. Okay, starting with verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me. So before we had the seven angels, they were dumping out their bowls on the creation and all these wild things were happening. One of the seven angels who had one of the bowls, I don't know which one was, one or seven or anyone between, but they came and they started, he started speaking with the apostle John. He says, come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on the waters. Now, again, language may be a little little interesting compared to other scriptures we covered. A harlot, if you don't know, is a whore or a prostitute, okay? Two, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. 
So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. So the angel takes John aside. He shows him this horrible sight, this vision of a harlot riding this scarlet-colored beast. And I just envision it as if she's like riding a horse, okay? Now, she's a picture of many things, this woman. Babylon back then, religion today and then and future, and also the false worldly church that's going to come on the scene after the rapture with the pretense of salvation. Remember, Jesus said basically in John John 10, I'm the gatekeeper. I'm the gate of the sheepfold. Anybody who tries to come before me or after me is a thief and a liar. It's a pretty interesting point. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. You can call him a good teacher, you can call him a good prophet, but you can't take away and divorce Jesus' words from the person. And this is what he said. So the first clue to understanding the vision is, number one, she sits on many waters. She has sway or control over all types of people of the earth. And we're going to see that in the next two clues. First, the leaders of the world, and then the laity. So she kind of covers it all there. The second clue... She's fornicated with the kings of the earth. Now, we can look at that and say, okay, I know what that means. There's a sexual connotation there. But remember, this is a vision. In the Old Testament, there was often pictures of the children of Israel committing adultery against God. Was that a group of people? What does that mean? It means that God loved Israel. He considered Israel his wife. And what she did was she looked at some of the gods of the other nations, the heathens, and started kind of leaving God and going to these different, different false pagan gods. And to God, that was adultery to him, you know? So this woman has fornicated with the kings of the earth. Very interesting bedfellows between this woman and what she represents and the leaders of the world. Spiritual ideology, idolatry leads folks away from God to an organized man-based religion. I want to read one scripture to kind of give me a little bit of a foundation here and a bolster what I'm saying Matthew 11, two verses, 7 and 8. Jesus is speaking about John the Baptist here. It says in verse 7, As they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, quote, So what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? You're not going to find that in John the Baptist. God separated him. He isolated him from the people. He brought him up in the spirit, and he taught him how to be a godly man. John was filled with the spirit. When he came on the scene, he wasn't like our political leaders today. They're a joke. And some of our religious leaders today are a joke because they're reeds shaken by the wind. They'll say, oh, I believe this, and then the winds of persecution blows, and then they'll say, well, I believe this, and they'll blow back and forth and keep changing their mind. It's doublespeak. But John the Baptist wasn't like that. Verse 8, but what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's house. My prophet, John, what did you think you were going to see? 
A man coming on the scene like the rest of the phony religious leaders with their soft garments and their uncalloused hands and their, their dainty ways and saying, hi, I'm a prophet of God, like the rest of them. Jesus said, no, those people who want to have that fanfare and that popularity and that appearance, they're in king's houses. They're fornicating with the kings of the world. My John the Baptist, he's separate. He's holy. He's not like these people. The Roman Catholic Church fornicated the kings of the earth with this woman. In medieval Europe, you can look up Catholic archives. Popes influenced uh, whole nations, whole segments of Europe, and they threatened anathemas or curses on those who didn't toe the line. Let's get closer to, to home a little bit. Many evangelical leaders, Billy Graham, okay? Here's a guy who was a great preacher, fire for the Lord, drew great crowds. You'll notice something about his life. As he started to befriend popes, the Dalai Lama, Mormon leaders, consulting presidents, go over to Europe and, and be friends with a lot of people over in Europe, he became a celebrity. And you know what happened? His doctrine started to go down, started to go into the toilet. Now, that's not very popular to say, especially among evangelicals. But I have his transcripts from the last 20 years, and when he's asked by Larry King and pressed on certain important issues, he doesn't answer the question. And if he does, he doesn't answer it correctly. It's just what it does. It's just, I'm just showing you over time how this system is creeping into the church. I'm not saying that all these people are evil, but I'm just going to show you how this, this woman is crept into the church. The third clue, the earth's inhabitants will be drunk with the wine of her fornication. Does that mean that the whole earth is just drunk and they're stumbling all over the place as with alcohol? No, but they've bought into her and what she's taught and what she's selling, that they're drunk with the wine of her fornication that their minds are not rational, they're not thinking straight. This is the other part of the equation. We had the rulers, now we have the laity. Karl Marx, the famous communist, said, religion is the opiate of the people. And he's right. He's right. Religion is the opiate of the people. You want to get a bunch of people to follow what you're doing? You introduce religion, put the thing out that you're trying to say, and you sway the people towards you. It works. The very religious people can sometimes be irrational and even blind, blind to the natural sciences. They don't want to learn about what the natural sciences say. I just believe what I believe and you're not going to change my mind. Me, I like to learn the natural sciences so I can help to lead the scientists to faith and the professors and all those people. I know why I believe what I believe because First Peter tells me to know why I believe what I believe. You see, then you would say, then why are we here today? Aren't we religious? No, it's relationship. See. In the beginning, God taught a relationship. Adam and Eve, he had a relationship with them. He asked them where they were. Why were they hiding from him? They were starting to break his relationship. And as time goes on, okay, Old Testament, New Testament, it's a relationship that we have with God. But man says, you know what? You know what? Relationships are work, aren't they? How many people are married? Okay, is relationship work? If you ignore it, what happens? You're on your way to divorce court. It's, it's the truth. Your kids, if you don't have a relationship with your kids, what happens when they're 18? They move out and you don't, you don't know them anymore. So it's relationship that, that God is looking for. That's why he gave us the ability to receive and give love because he loves us and wants a relationship. But what does man do? It's too much work. I'm just going to say these prayers. I'm just going to do these things. I'm going to follow these church rules and I'm going to be fine. I'm going to get in heaven. But you're completely circumventing like the Tower of Babel, God, who's the one who authored that relationship.
It's right there, the fourth clue. She's riding the beast. She's pulling the strings for a time. Remember, the beast we talked about was the Antichrist, the coming world dictator. So for a sense, there's a nice relationship between this woman, this false church, this Babylonian system, and this dictator to get the masses to get in line through religion. Something interesting happened after World War II. They went into some of the churches and they found big crosses in German churches in Germany. And right in the center of those crosses, they found swastikas. The church got in line with the state, and that's why, you know, when Hitler was getting going, it, it was hard for, to stop him because the religious people started to get involved and, and, and go into this believing that Hitler was a good guy. A merger between the church and the state. The fifth clue, the colors. She was wearing purple and scarlet. Now, this signifies wealth and power. Why? Today, if you have... Um, coat or a pair of pants or whatever, a shirt, you want to change its color, you go to the store and you buy dyes. They all have the same bottle, but they have different colored caps, and you put it in your whatever. You do what you ever do, and you, and you, you dye your clothing. And they all cost about the same price. Let's, let's reverse about 2,000 years or further. To make purple, it was, I believe it was a flower. It was a rare flower, and they had to crush it, and the, uh, the ooze, the, the liquid that came out of the flower, made that purple dye. So purple and scarlet... If you wore those colors, you actually, it signified that you were wealthy because it took, uh, it was very expensive to buy clothes that could be dyed in these colors. The colors of Imperial Rome, the Roman Empire, were purple and scarlet. As a matter of fact, the soldiers, if you remember, when they were mocking Jesus for being a king, they took a purplish uh, uh, scarlet robe and they put it on Jesus and they mocked him and they beat him. They said, you're the king, ha, ha, ha. They didn't believe him, obviously. So that was the color of, of imperial Rome, of wealth. And these later colors became the colors of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, folks, I want to tell you something. I grew up. I was baptized in the Catholic Church. I have family who are uh, Catholic members still. So this isn't a, 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 a dig on these members. But God will hold accountable, definitely, the leaders of some of these organizations because they're teaching false doctrine. He will hold them accountable. So it's not about bashing the people. We want to love people and open their eyes, but understand that a lot of these organizations have this woman who's part of them, this Babylonian system. And I'm going to go into it more detail in later. She had gold and precious stones and pearls. The false church amassed wealth for herself in strict disobedience to Jesus and the apostles' teaching. Jesus said, Store up yourself treasures in heaven, where moth and rust don't destroy and thieves don't break in and steal. He says, where your treasures are, uh, your heart will be, and vice versa. So the false church hoards these assets. Silver and gold, Peter said to the lame man. I have none of these. I don't have silver and gold, but what I have to you, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. Okay? Wealthy religious institutions and empires are often more concerned about hoarding assets. And let me tell you something. There's enough blame to go around because the evangelicals now... Or it's big money to be in the evangelical church, especially if you can get this huge megachurch uh, and these, these massive amounts of people tithing. The assets are in the hundreds of millions. Everybody said, oh, the Catholic church is the wealthiest institution. Well, the evangelicals are, are probably running a real close second. It's about hoarding assets. A cup full of abominations she has. It looks good on the outside, but inside it's filled with abominations. Religion should glorify God, but many horrible harbor the most vile sins in all of history. 
Jesus said two things. Remember, Jesus had more trouble with the religious establishment than anybody else. Read your Gospels. Jesus had the most trouble with the religious establishment. He, he, he said a few things. Number one, he looked at the religious leaders and said, you got nice robes, you guys look really spiffy, you look real holy, but you know what? You're like whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but you're filled with dead men's bones. Jesus also said to the religious leaders, you do these, these things and these rituals and these traditions and you, you, you wipe the cup and the dish, but he goes inside are filled with hypocrisy and all kinds of plagues. Crimes, scandals, even blasphemy about how some religious leaders elevate themselves as mediators. There was somebody who has that role already, and that's Jesus. He's the only mediator between God and man, according to the book of Timothy. The sixth clue, the writing on her forehead. Now, it's in capitals in my Bible. It's very important. This woman who rides the beast has now all these names written on her forehead. Now, Let's do a little contrast here. If you remember the 144,000, those were God's people. They had the name written up, uh, their God's name written on their forehead. Here's a cheap imitation where she has other names written in her forehead. Number one is mystery. False religions and cults have secretive practices in opposition to what Jesus taught. Jesus spoke about things that you do in the darkness will be shouted from the housetops. Uh, John, in his first, second, and third John, John speaks about speaking in the light, not to walk in darkness, but to walk into, into the light. Look at the Mormon practices. Many have come out of Mormonism, and what they found was their temple practices are very secretive. They're clandestine. They're, they have special underwear that they wear that are supposed to do things for them. Um, their beliefs are very secretive, and their oaths are very secretive. Everything they do is a very secretive, uh, clandestine type of uh, organization that you don't really get to know the deep secrets until you, get under, until you get in there. You see what I'm saying? That's not what Jesus taught. Two, Babylon the Great. Well, clearly it had all these things that this woman represents have origins in Babylon. That's why I went through the book of Genesis. Babylon is where it started thousands of years ago. It continues today, and Babylon is where it ends. And three, the mother of harlots and abominations. She is a harlot, but she is the mother of abominations and uh, harlots. What it's telling us is this woman who's riding the beast represents the source where it all came from. She is the spirit of Babylon. Now, interesting, if you follow pagan religions, if you, you know, it's good to see what the enemy's teaching. I always believe that, you know. I like to look at different things and, and educate myself so I'm not just coming up here spouting off at, at, from emotionalism. I do my homework. But look at the Babylonian religion. If you, if you, just, you can use a search engine and check it out. There's a lot of good stuff on it, uh, archaeological digs, things they found, uh, writings. They can tell a lot about this, these old uh, religions. But the Babylonian religion worked its way into Rome, the Roman Empire. And when the Roman Empire kind of fell, it wasn't really conquered around the 3rd or 4th century. It worked its way into the church at the time. Let me give you an example. And a lot of good people I know, good Christians, you know, do these practices. Easter, what do we do for Easter? Well, we like to call it Resurrection Sunday because the word Easter is not in the Bible. The name Easter comes from pagan or origins, especially the Easter bunny and the coloring of eggs. It comes from a fertility cult. Now listen, I don't want you to leave here saying, ah, oh, I can't do anything. Pastor Joe, I've got to take the eggs away from my poor kids and they're going to be crying. I can't do it next Easter. 
I'm not saying that. I don't want you to live in fear. But I want to show you that this woman, throughout the ages, has infected the church. Now, we've Christianized some things. My understanding is if you um, study the wedding ring, that actually has pagan origins, but we've kind of Christianized it, and we use it as a sign to others of the opposite sex. I'm taken, which is a good thing. But there is a lot of this creeping into the church. And not for nothing, we live in Satan's playground, so what's going to happen? Some of the things that, um, that you see, uh, and I'll go into it, and then I'll just kind of go to Exodus and kind of counter it. Uh, those paintings of the mother and, and the child eternally holding Jesus as a baby with the halos, pagan origins. Worshiping of the sun god and the mother and child cult. Um, veneration of items that are inanimate. The veneration of the sunburst monstrance that's on a pole and they, they kiss it, and they, they kiss the, the Eucharist, and they do all that stuff. We're not supposed to kiss inanimate objects. We don't venerate something that's dead. We venerate Jesus Christ. We don't prostrate ourselves before statues or icons. Man, that is paganism. It all comes from Babylon. Now, let me just help you, to, again, before you start throwing things at me. Heather, <laughs> Heather said to me, you better wear jeans today, so if they start throwing things at you, you can run out the door. We'll add a little levity here. In Exodus 32, after God led the children of Israel out of Egypt, there was one of these occasions where Moses was talking to God, having a good old time, and the children of Israel said, oh, it's been a few days, it's been a long time, where's Moses? What are we going to do? We're out here in the wilderness, Moses is gone, we don't know what happened to him. So what did they do? Take all your earrings off your jewelry, melt it down, they fashioned it into a pool of gold, let it semi-harden, the artisans got together and they made this golden calf. You might say, oh, what a bunch of pagans. But you know what the children of Israel were doing if you read the scripture? They didn't know what God looked like. So what they did was they fashioned the golden calf and they said, this is the one who led us out of Egypt. I believe their intentions were good. They were saying, God, we don't know what you look like. Moses is gone. Okay, so we're going to take over. Maybe you look like a cow because the cow gives us milk. It gives us meat. It gives us sustenance. Um, it's a really nice, friendly animal. Lord... The golden calf, that's you, right, God? Man, the Lord was so angry when he came down. He said, Moses, you better get over there because these people are going to be toast inside of five minutes. Well, he didn't say that, but just kind of, it's my, my impression of it. But what were the people doing? They were taking an object because they didn't know what God looked like, a nice object, a friendly object, and said, we're going to worship the golden calf. That's why God said in the Ten Commandments, don't take any graven images. Don't make a likeness of me. Don't make a statue of Jesus. Don't make a, a picture of, you know, listen, if I come to your house and you have those pictures of Jesus with the blue eyes and the red hair, I'm not going to ask you to take it down. <laughs> no one's going to invite me over anymore. Hide all the pagan stuff. Pastor Joe's coming over for dinner. <laughs> you know? so, add a little levity to it. So you, you see what I'm saying? This is, you see... It, it, does, it takes away the reverence from God when we try to make an object that we're familiar with. In Exodus, it says, don't make an, a likeness of in heaven, on the earth, or of the sea. Because God is so awesome that there's no way anything that we make that could look like him, no matter how beautifully fashioned, is not him. It's not him. And it'll never represent him. She's drunk with the blood of the saints and the martyrs. This woman murdered so many that she was intoxicated with their blood. Just, I, can, I, can't just, I can't imagine what the hundreds of millions or more of God's people who've been murdered over the years in the name of religion. 
Look at the mass murders of Christians, Jews, at the hands of religion, pe- religious people. Get yourself a copy of The Voice of the Martyrs. It's happening today. In our age of enlightenment, there's still brothers and sisters in other lands. I tell you, some of these missionaries come up and they go to Afghanistan and, and Malaysia and some of these places, and I'm like, oh, Lord, what brave people, because they may not come back. In the name of religious people, they're murdered. Okay, they're murdered. Graham Staines was in India. Hindu people are such wonderful people. I mean, there's so many of them in South Brunswick. If you go to India, though, and there's a village that, that's staunchly Hindu, and you try to bring Jesus in, they, they set him, him and his sons in the car, and they lit it on fire, and they burned them alive because they're so fanatical about their religion that they, they think that their religion is being threatened. You see it in Islam. You see it in the Crusades and in the Inquisitions under the umbrella of eradicating supposed false doctrine. They bought into this lie that God wants them to murder. God doesn't want us to murder. He wants us to win people over with love. Polish worker in Afghanistan recently, a week ago, a week and a half, um, poor guy is an engineer trying to feed his families in Afghanistan. Taliban captures him. They hold him down, real, real cowards with the masks on so nobody can see what they are, and they behead him, okay? This is, this is in the name of Allah, Allah, Akbar. You know, it's in the name of religion. It's nonsense. It's sick. Spirit of Babylon. She laughs. She's drunk with the blood of the saints. She's so high. More saints die. She's just got this blood all over her. She loves it. Now, the question is, let's take a look at the vision. Let's step back for a minute. Why is she a whore? Does God hate whores? No. Jesus spent much of his time trying to save people like that. But a whore, think about this. In real life, a whore is someone who lures you away from a relationship with the deceitful promise of something better, and it only leads to destruction. Something worth thinking about. A whore leads you away from a relationship with the deceitful promise of something better, which only leads you to destruction. That's why she's the vision that she is. And this whore has been leading men and women away from God for thousands of years. God gives, and she promises something better. She promises something easier. Relationship's too hard. Do it this way. Do it the religious way. This woman is so brutal that she gives whores a bad name. That's why she's a vision and a representative and not a person. She represents past, present, and future apostate church, the last day's church. We covered in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 the false churches or the churches that really had problems, that had to work on their issues, Laodicea, Thyatira, Pergamos, and Sardis. Now, on a side note, there's a, a book that was written by Dave Hunt called The Woman Rides the Beast. And some of you may have read it. I read it. The, the, the man, when he does his, Dave Hunt does a lot of um, research, he's got literally hundreds of footnotes because religious people will read it and be aghast. So he's actually put the footnotes in to prove where he got his statements from. Now, I don't, I don't agree completely with his conclusion. Uh, I believe that the woman is a representative of many things, especially the spirit of Babylon. But it's a good book if you ever take the time to read it. In verse 6, John is amazed because he's looking... Try to look at this from John's perspective. He's looking at this, this prostitute, this whore. And in Revelation 12, he just saw another vision of, of this woman with the sun and the stars and the moon at her feet, or moon, the stars on the bottom. But, uh, and she's a, a lovely woman, and she gives birth to the man-child, and that's Jesus. And of course, she's a picture of Israel. Satan tries to kill the man-child, but he, he's, he fails in that, so Satan persecutes the woman. And, and, and John probably has empathy for her. She's a lovely vision of Israel. And there's another woman that probably John could think of in Ephesians 5. 
the Apostle Paul speaks about the church, the true body of believers. We comprise together uh, the body, um, the bride of Christ. Christ is the head, Bible tells us, and we comprise the body. But we also are Christ's bride. And if John has a picture in Ephesians 5 of his mind, she's probably a lovely, chaste virgin. And Ephesians 5 says that, that Jesus presents us collectively perfect and spotless to the Father as his bride. And then he sees this woman. And he's like, whoa, a little bit aghast, a little bit in awe, kind of can't really make out what's going on here. Comparatively speaking, he sees this woman probably who reminds him of Jezebel in the Old Testament because he knows what the church and God's people should look like. But you know what this means, folks? This means that when Christ comes to take his true church home, let's say it was tomorrow, he'll scoop many from many churches, he'll scoop them up, take them home with him, and there'll be many that are still sitting in the seats because we need a, a false church. We need an end of days church. So it just proves my point. Christ comes, he raptures his people, he takes them home, and there'll be many other people who say, yeah, I grew up in the church, I call myself a Christian, I'm in the Christian culture, and you know what? They don't go, they miss the first train, so to speak. So these people make up this woman. And my question is, can you see the church descend into sickness today? Now remember, there's a pool, especially in America, let's use America, there's a pool of Christians. Let's say there's in there, it's in the millions. I call myself a Christian. Big pool. But within that pool is a smaller pool of the true body of Christ. Okay? And there is a, maybe a sickness in the church today. The church has its problems. Probably one of the names for this study could be all the problems with the American church. And of course we know that the church comprises Europe and, and, and the rest of the world too. But Emergent church doctrine is something I spoke about. It's sweeping our youth. Sin isn't sin anymore. They're going back to icons. They're going back to venerating objects. Uh, behavior and purity are not important anymore. You know what this is? Satan's, Satan's not new. He doesn't do anything new. This is recycled antinomianism. It's lawlessness. Hey, we have something great for the youth. They're really going to be excited and attracted to it. Yeah, great. It's cyanide. <laughs> That's what we have for the youth. Talked about the Unitarian Universalist churches that take no stand on any traditional doctrine so long as the, the, the congregation is happy. I don't offend the congregation. And when I don't offend the congregation, I'm happy because they're not mad at me. So everybody's happy in that church. That's a recycled Arianism. See, Satan is green. He's like the great recycler. He takes these old doctrines. He waits a few years, a few hundred years. He recycles them and says, look, something new. He repackages them. The 1800s saw an explosion in pseudo-Christian religions, Jehovah Witnesses and Mormonisms being one of them, continuing to deceive people. Hyper-Calvinism, and I mean hyper-Calvinism, is infecting Generation Y Christians. This doctrine says that, and only until you get deeper into it, that babies, if they're you know, two or toddlers and they die, if they're not part of the elect, they're damned to hell. This, this doctrine teaches, and you won't hear it from the ones that talk to you, it takes time for you to get into this doctrine. Hyper-Calvinism teaches that God creates man and women and, uh, you know, to, to live, and if they're not part of his elect, even if they say, I want to confess my sins and trust in Jesus, God says, no, I made you so that you could go to hell, so I could torment you. Pretty awesome, awful stuff. Um, it's... Basically, when, when the Bible says that God loves everyone, God loves the world, God gave his son for the world, the hyper-Calvinists say, no, they, no, he didn't. 
He doesn't love everyone. He loves some, but not all. And it's also anti-Israel. And if you take it to its extreme, they have shirts that say, don't preach the gospel, because it doesn't matter. If you're the elect, you're the elect. If you're not, you're not. So don't preach the gospel. It doesn't matter. Pretty, pretty, um, pretty awful stuff. The age of the evangelical megachurch is replete with its own set of problems, chronoscopic to our age. We're in the time segment of the evangelical church. It's relatively new. But the, the, this type of church and the megachurch has its own set of problems. And the last one, the icing on the cake, is the Roman Catholic Church, the Protestant churches, and some evangelical churches are reuniting for the sake of Christian unity and discarding important, solid biblical doctrine. Now, if you take, again, search engine, I just want to prove everything that I say. Take your search engine on your computer and write in ecumenism. Ecumenism. Catholic Church starts it. They get together with the Protestants and the evangelicals. Christian unity, doctrine's not important anymore. Let's not teach the people good doctrine. We just want to have unity. One world government, we even see the one world bank. In light of the economy around the world, they're trying to unite the banks. One world order, they're really playing well into the one world religion. And my question is, do they read their Bibles? Because when they do this kind of stuff, they're playing right into this woman who rides the beast. What about on an individual level within Christendom? Let's take it to a personal level. We have a young generation of believers that have no reverence for the Lord anymore. And I've got to be honest with you, that's something that I even pray about because I know older Christians who really reverence the Lord and I'm thinking, gee, do I not have enough reverence for God? But it's the culture that we live in, folks. It's the Christian culture. The bo- there's a book called The Shack, which I'm not a fan of. I've read parts of it and it's pretty blasphemous. In an attempt to help understand God, it brings God down to our level. It takes away the reverence. Some Bibles, like the Message and some of our contemporary Bibles, take away the blood and hell and, and the cross, and they replace it with things that are more enjoyable and palatable to read. There's a whole segment of Christianity that wants to be spiritually entertained. I just left my Wii at home. I was playing tennis, and I was playing my Xbox, and I come to church, and Pastor Joe, will you entertain me? There's an Uber church down the, down the street that has puffs of smoke and lights and light shows, and they dazzle me, and I really like that. Our generation wants to be entertained. And you know what? They're spiritually anemic. They're anemic. They don't have anything to them. And it shows in their walks. People come to church looking for an agenda, maybe to sell their business or to find a a mate for themselves or, or to network. And they want to know what they can get out of the church, but they have no regard for blessing others. We have a whole generation of believers that shift blame and have a victim complex, and are unwilling to take personal responsibility for their lives. My wife teaches the young ladies that. Personal responsibility. You do something wrong, take responsibility for it. The modern church is filled with materialism and worldliness and carnalness that you can't tell the difference sometimes between Christians and their unsaved neighbors. Then some form cliques, and like the prodigal son's older brother, they have no concern for the unsaved. Well, I've got my Christian friends and my Christian culture. That person doesn't speak English. That person's a biker. That person looks new. I'm not interested. I've got my click. I have the unique perspective of being in law enforcement for 19 years, and sometimes I see a greater transparency with those people on the street, a greater truthfulness, a greater honesty, and a desire to be with God, but they feel that they're not worthy. And some Christians have really lost that, really lost that. See, I get to live in both worlds, and I see both. Of course, it's nobody here because you guys are really studied up real well and you've been listening to me for three and a half years, so we're, we're all cool. i just throw that in there. 
But you know, I believe that Jesus probably had an issue with the religious in his day. And I think it was refreshing for Jesus when he hung out with the unsaved. I really do. I see that in the scripture. Idol worship and groupy behavior towards Christian celebrities. And when they're idol Christians, well, I can only listen to this teacher. I can only listen to that performer. Christian celebrities, right? What happens when your idol falls off the table? What happens when the man falls into sin? You're either in denial or you lose your faith. I've seen people lose their faith. Pastor falls into sin, they're gone. Don't read their Bibles. Don't pray anymore. Well, your, your eyes were never on Jesus then. I'm sorry. I, I can't make it nice for you. We have Christians that become worshipers of education, status, sports, success, and money. And everything I just said in the last 30 minutes can be backed up with Scripture. So according to the, the Bible, according to the Scripture, this woman is going to be representative in one, one of the things, one of the ways of the false church of the last days. And anyone who's new to the faith, listen, we go out on the website, we go out on CDs. If anyone's listening to this and they're new to the faith, this is not for you. As a matter of fact, when I go to work with my guys, I find myself at times explaining and excusing or apologizing better for the behavior of certain Christians. Hey, Joe, you know, I don't know much about the Lord, but I saw this on TV and uh, you're right. That isn't right. And you know what? Sometimes I've had to apologize for my behavior. So I think as Christians, we need to um, see that a lot of times that Christ is not represented well in the church. And the way things are going, the church is starting to look pretty whorish at this point. John sees this in this woman a vague, corrupted resemblance to the church. Today, the bride of Christ, or those under the banner of Christians, are not all the bride of Christ. Paul says, the Apostle Paul in Romans 9.6, they are not all Israel who are of Israel. All of them came out of Egypt, right? They crossed over the Dead Sea. But God at some times opened up the ground and swallowed them up and killed them because of their rebelliousness and, their, and they weren't all of Israel. And it's no different today. There's a disease in the church, folks. There's a disease. And she's represented in the woman who rides the beast, the spirit of Babylon, and it goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. There's only one way to heaven. It's not through a tower. It's not through the Christian culture. It's not through works, but it's through grace. It's through grace. And anything else is just the corruption of Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word as always, Lord. We thank you.